0: The new Super Beats Hard Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL.
1: This week, we saw something that we don't often see on the floor of the U.S. Senate. A Republican senator with an A-plus rating from the NRA talking up gun reform.  —
0: Mr. President, I want to report that we are making serious progress in our bipartisan effort to respond to the shooting in Uvalde, Texas and other places around the country over
1: the last few weeks —— Senator John Cornyn is from Texas, and he was a senator who recently led a group of nine other Republicans to actually make a deal with Democrats on gun control. —
0: No parent should have to send their child to school wondering whether they're going to be safe at school. And certainly no student should be afraid to go to school for fear of their safety. I'm proud of the work we've done so far, but of course, we're not at the finish line. Um, We are still at the beginning.
1: One of our reporters who watched this all play out on Capitol Hill is Leanne Caldwell. She says that in many ways, this deal was a huge moment, but now, the hard part.
2: He is saying that he hopes to have the actual legislation written, you know, by the end of the week and to perhaps bring it to the Senate floor to vote on next week. That seems really fast and aggressive because writing legislation takes a lot of time. It's complicated, but we'll see if they stick to it.
1: From the newsroom of the Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, June 15th. Today, we talk with Leanne about the Senate's bipartisan gun control deal. She explains what this plan would actually do and what happens behind the scenes to get 10 Republicans on board. And we ask the question could this be the last chance for a long time to get any meaningful action on federal gun control? So, on Sunday, a group of 20 senators said that they had agreed to a tentative agreement on gun legislation. What exactly does that mean?
2: Well, what that means is they had been meeting for a few weeks, and they have come together to agree to a framework. It's about a nine-point plan, and with a little bit of detail into how it should be administered. But the reason it's not a full-fledged agreement yet is because they have to write the actual legislation. Um, And of course, the legislation is what becomes law. And so the wording is very important. The details are very important. Phrasing, commas, periods, it all matters.
1: So you use the word framework to describe what they've agreed on so far. And framework sounds like the word that I would use in college when I was saying that I had started writing a paper and I hadn't actually started writing it. How much is this quote-unquote framework an actual significant step toward writing a bipartisan bill on gun control?
2: It's actually pretty significant. These members have been meeting for quite some time. Their staffs have been working day and night. And so they had enough of an outline etched out that it gave them the path forward. And so I would say there, you know, if you want to do a football analogy, they were probably on the 75-yard line.
1: Hmm, That does seem pretty significant. And so when would this actually be in the form of something that the Senate could vote on?
2: Well, I talked to Senator Chris Murphy, the Democrat, who was the lead negotiator on this Sunday, just hours after they Announce this deal.
0: What pillar?
2: What pillar is where where the where the biggest hangups are? Uh, I'm not
0: going to talk about that.
2: And he told me that it was going to be quote Herculean work in order to finish the legislation and vote on it in the next two weeks because the Senate leaves town for a couple weeks over the July 4th recess.
0: If we broke the political logjam here and showed that there was bipartisan support at the federal level for reply laws, I think that would have an impact um, in, in states where this has become, uh, you know, a, a heated, uh, a heated topic.
1: So, tell me, what are the provisions in this deal, or and or what we know so far of what they're working on?
2: Yeah, of course. So, let's start with the eighteen to twenty-one year old provision. There was a lot of people who wanted to ban assault-style weapons, you know, lift that age to purchase them until you're 21. That's not in this bill. What is in this bill, though, is expanding background checks for that age group. For instance, the Uvalde shooter went and bought an assault weapon right after their 18th birthday. The way the law is now, when a background check is conducted, they cannot go into a juvenile's background. But this bill would enable law enforcement to do that because currently those records are sealed.
1: So if you had someone who was coming in to buy a gun and they were under 21, the person who's selling the gun would perform a background check and that background check could look to see if they had kind of juvenile interactions with police officers or been arrested for something or something like that?
2: Correct. Or mental health components that, you know, things that would trigger a pause.
1: And if that had been in place before the Uvalde shooting, would it have prevented that shooter from obtaining an assault weapon?
2: The two lead negotiators, Senator Cornyn and Senator Murphy, say that it would have. You know, the system has to work, of course, but they say that there were things in his juvenile record. So that is the intention here. You know, they wanted to get at that 18 to 21 year old age group, because that is the profile of a lot of these mass shootings. And a lot of these people tend to have things in their background and their juvenile record, but authorities didn't know about them because they're sealed when you turn 18. So they're trying to change that.
1: That's interesting. And what else is in this framework?
2: So as far as the gun provisions are concerned, there's another thing which they are calling state crisis intervention orders. And under this category is the so-called red flag laws. And this has been something that's been very contentious and controversial. There's about, you know, 16 states that have red flag laws currently. That is, if I go in and say, my best friend is dangerous and violent and they should not be having a gun because I'm worried about them hurting me. I'm worried about them hurting other people or themselves. They can go to authorities and say there is a red flag with this person. And then that person could have their gun confiscated. And so this is something that Democrats had wanted to implement nationally, a federal red flag law. Well, what this provision does is it doesn't implement federal legislation or federal standard, but it provides grant money for states to implement their own red flag laws if they so choose.
1: And so then what about for the states that are not willing to put red flag laws in place? What would this measure provide to them?
2: So they'll have an option here. And for the ones that don't want to do red flag laws, there's a lot of concerns among Republicans that there's not enough due process or it could take away someone's guns. There's going to be money for other sort of, quote, crisis interventions, which would be something like creating or expanding or improving drug courts or mental health courts or outpatient treatment programs. And so this is kind of more in the whole mental health realm of things that republicans are more geared toward, but it's under the same category. So some states who want to implement red flag laws or enhance their red flag laws will have money to do that. Other states under the same funding category will be able to use money for these other non-red flag law type things, but still under this whole state crisis intervention effort.
1: So those seem like two pretty significant parts of the negotiation here. Can you just give an overview of some of the other uh, items that are part of what they've agreed on?
2: Sure. There is money for mental health resources in schools. There's money for telehealth. There's money to create more secure schools. One other thing that is really interesting about this is it closes the so called boyfriend loophole. This is something that Democrats and Congress have been trying to close for a really long time. So, if a person is legally married, has a spouse, and it's an abusive relationship, there's domestic violence, the partner who is being abused can go and file a claim and The abuser could have their guns confiscated. But say like there's a long-term partnership or a domestic partnership or, you know, just a boyfriend. If you're not legally married, you can't go and make that same claim against your abuser. And so what this does is this enables people who are in non-legally binding relationships, but are being abused by their significant other to go and make this claim. And so that the abuser's guns could be confiscated. And so this is a really big deal for the domestic violence community, people who are fighting domestic violence and trying to protect people who are in domestic and violent relationships. And so this is actually pretty significant. It wouldn't necessarily address Uvalde, but this is something that Democrats have been trying to do for a very long time.
1: Well, because we know that domestic abuse incidents so often comes up in the the personal histories of people who end up becoming mass shooters. So it seems like this could be helpful both for the domestic abuse survivor community, but also for just general prevention of mass shootings.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And also there's a lot of people who are killed every day from domestic violence. That's not necessarily mass shooting.
1: So who has been working on this deal? Like, who are the people who have made this possible? Yeah, well, the two lead
2: negotiators, the first on the Democrats is Senator Chris Murphy, a Democrat from Connecticut. He represents Sandy Hook. And so this has been an issue that he has really cared about for a very, very long time. The other is Senator John Cornyn, the Republican of Texas, who— it represents a state that has had a lot of mass shootings, especially in recent years. There was Sutherland Springs, which is the church. There was El Paso, you know, and then most recently Uvalde and it's just the tip of the iceberg.
1: I'm really curious about Senator Cornyn's motivations here. Yes, he's representing a state that has experienced lots of gun violence and and mass shootings. But at the same time, I mean, he is a Republican, so closely aligned with GOP leadership in the Senate. You know, he's from Texas, which is not necessarily the state that's like leading the charge in gun reform. And so what are his motivations here? Why is he the one who's like, we have to come up with some kind of agreement to address guns?
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. He's always been open to it. Like you said, he represents a state with many mass shootings.
0: I can't stop thinking about the 19 children and the two teachers who lost their lives in Uvalde, Um, Texas.
2: He was a judge in Texas. He's conservative, he's partisan, but he can also be pragmatic.
0: The great thing about the design of our country is that uh, we have a national government, but we have sovereign states.
2: And so, Because he is close to leadership, because he comes from Texas, and because he has such a good rating with the NRA, these are all reasons why Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has kind of deputized him to take the lead in this, because he has a lot of credibility with the right. He has a lot of credibility with the Republican base and gun
0: owners. And of course, I won't support any grant program that violates the Constitution or the requirement of due process of law when it comes to a constitutional right like the Second Amendment.
2: He's trying to calm down those who might be concerned that there is an agreement with Democrats on guns. He is insisting that this will not touch law-abiding gun owners, that this will not infringe on the Second Amendment. And that this is legislation is really focused on mental health. And so he is not championing this as some major agreement. He is saying this is common sense, smart, reasonable uh, response that is very targeted in its focus and will not be an overreach.
1: And why is this happening now? Because I think like, obviously, the simple answer to that is Uvalde and how horrifying it has been to hear about what happened there. But at the same time, I mean, these mass shootings happen all of the time. They've become a normal part of American life. And we haven't seen this kind of action in response to so many of the other shootings that we've seen recently. So what's happening now that has started to grease the wheels a little bit?
2: I do think Uvalde, I think that the horror of the incident really played a huge role. Senator Murphy told me, I asked him how this started. And he said after Uvalde happened, he sent Senator Cornyn a text and said, My heart goes out to you. I am so sorry. I'm thinking about you and, you know, your constituents. And he said that kind of just opened the discussion. And then a couple days later, they met. And so I think there is a really a personal and emotional component to it. Politically speaking, it becomes, you know, a little bit more complicated. The midterm elections is 5 months away. This was an issue that polling has shown the public was very angry about and frustrated with and It's not just Democrats and independents who wanted something done. There was a majority of Republicans, too, a slim majority, like in the low 50s. But there were still Republicans who thought that something needed to be done. And if nothing was done, Republicans were going to be blamed. And McConnell, who is often thinking in terms of political power and how he and the Republican Party is going to gain power. You could assume that he was thinking that it would be better to take this off the table so Democrats can't run on it if something is done, but also control the scope of what is done so that it is not sweeping and that it is not too far reaching, but that it addresses things in a modest way, but in a way enough that Democrats can't motivate their voters on the issue.
1: After the break, Leanne explains how some Republican support for this deal hinged on the specific timing of the midterm election calendar. We'll be right back. So let's talk more about these Republican votes. There are 10 Republican senators who have said that they are signing on to at least the agreement as it stands so far. If this were to be voted on today, I mean, do you think that there is a world where even more than those 10 Republican senators would be on board?
2: I think so. And the reason I think so is because we spoke with one of Senator Cornyn's former top advisors, and he said Senator Cornyn will not come to a deal that doesn't get 20, 25, 30 Republicans. Seriously? It's just, yeah. That's a very high bar. It's a very high bar, but if they all jump ship together, right, and they're already starting to frame this in the way they think is best for them, they are saying that this is a mental health bill, This does nothing to impede the rights of law-abiding gun owners. It is not an infringement of the Second Amendment. And so if they're able to message this correctly, which they are trying very hard to do, they think that they can get half the Republican conference. And that is why it was so important for the framework to be released with the support of 10 senators. That's the bare minimum. And then Leader McConnell on... Tuesday came out and said that he's pretty supportive of the framework. And if the legislative text matches with what the framework says, that he's going to support it.
0: Of the framework is off the charts, overwhelming. I, I think if this framework becomes the actual piece of legislation, it's a step forward, a step forward on a bipartisan basis and further demonstrate to the American people That we can come together, which we have done from time to time. So
2: there's 11 right there. And if McConnell supports it, then more feel free to jump. And they feel free to jump not because they McConnell can give them cover, because it's not like, you know, Republicans really love McConnell. He actually polls very low among Republicans. But McConnell is reading the polls and knows what is happening in every single state that his members have an election. And he knows that this will not be politically harmful for them.
1: I have to say that's fascinating to me because I would have assumed the other side of that, right? That like at this moment before the midterms, Republicans would not want to do anything that hands Democrats essentially a victory. But it sounds like what you're saying is that they are more concerned or more fearful that there's a world where Democrats are able to really successfully talk about how you know, Republicans are at fault for not preventing mass shootings and that that they're more afraid of what happens if they don't pass this and what happens if they do pass it.
2: I think that's right. I think that a non-issue is sometimes better. In politics, they often create issues or don't solve things because it's a good issue to run on. But when the public is supportive of something being done and something not being done because of one party, I think that Republicans did not want the blame because they knew they were going to be blamed for it. And the primary season is almost over. So when Republicans are fearing candidates' challenges from the right, it's too late for far-right candidates who are running on the gun issue to jump in like most of the races have closed or like the filing deadlines have closed. The primaries are almost over. So it's too late in the primary cycle for it to have a major impact. And it's so close to an election that they could be blamed if nothing was done.
1: But, you know, at the same time, I do think it's important to make it clear like how far there is to go here and how much can go wrong, especially if the goal right now is to get 20, 25 Republican senators to agree to this. So do you have insights into what the sources of obstruction from Republicans, like who are going to be the Republicans that are not going to vote in favor of this and what are they going to say?
2: Yeah, I think that's actually a really interesting question, the what are they going to say? Are they going to stay silent? And that won't matter. If they're silent, it's going to be fine. They're just going to go about their way, vote against it. But if they do say that this is a gun confiscation bill, this infringes on a Second Amendment right, that could be very problematic for the other Republicans who do vote for this legislation if it comes to that. But the ones who I could foresee not touching this, the ones who are probably going to run for president in 2024... Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, Josh Hawley of Missouri, probably Tom Cotton. You know, there's kind of that realm. Senator Rand Paul is probably one, a libertarian, Mike Lee, more on the libertarian side. But I think that there's going to be a good chunk of those. The question is what happens to kind of the ones who always fall along the party line and just do and do what leadership does. So we'll see.
1: I want to talk briefly about the other folks who are going to have to agree to this if this were to become a law. I assume that this is something that the White House is in favor of. I mean, this kind of negotiation feels exactly in kind of Joe Biden's wheelhouse of like what his presidency promised. But for the House and particularly House Democrats, I mean, you know, at least for the next few months, they still have enough votes where they don't need any Republicans to, but with them to pass this on their side. But Are they okay with this? I mean, this kind of agreement that I would imagine falls way short of the kinds of gun control legislation that Democrats in the House would want to pass?
2: Yeah, I've been asking a lot of House Democrats, and they're kind of holding their fire until they see legislative text. But some of the things I've heard is, for example, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she has concerns about the, quote, criminalization component of it. I am disappointed to hear a, fo- a, a focus on increased criminal uh, criminalization and juvenile criminalization instead of really having the focus on guns. She actually worries about the main provision of this bill where they can go, where you can go into an 18 to 21-year-old's juvenile background to check for the purchase of a gun. She is worried about the increased security at schools. So is Representative Cory Bush, someone who was also on the left end of the spectrum.
1: We have heard a lot of stories, a lot of theories about how best to protect students and how best to, to protect teachers. At best, these suggestions are absurd distractions. And at worst, they will further harm the very communities in need of our help the most.
2: But, you know, both. Cory Bush and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said that they are hopeful or encouraged, but there's going to still be a lot of questions. And so as far as House Republicans are concerned, I'm not sure where they're going to stand. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy has still said nothing about this framework, and we'll see how it falls. I suspect that fewer House Republicans will vote for it than Senate Republicans.
1: Leanne, as someone who has covered the Hill in Congress for a while. I'm curious what your kind of personal read is on this moment. It seems like when you read the headline about this, there is a lot to hope for for people who have wanted to see some kind of change on gun control and gun access in this country for a long time. And yet at the same time, I mean, this is Congress and things go slowly and they blow up and plans fall apart. And, and I wonder, like, Do you see this as a big moment? Do you see this as like a sea change? So I
2: see this as a big moment. Senator Chris Murphy told me that the particulars of the bill or the proposal are extremely important, but so is the fact that this logjam of 30 years of doing nothing in Congress will have been broken on guns. And the question I have is, okay, if they pass this, Is this logjam broken just on this and then there's going to be 30 more years of nothing else done? Or is the logjam broken so that there will continue to be incremental improvements in gun safety and mental health regarding this issue? You know, I tend to believe that it's going to be the former, where this is going to be it for a long while. And I think that's why some people are a little skittish and nervous about it, because they wanted this to go much further. And so people do worry that this is going to be as much as they're gonna get for a while. Putting all that aside, I do think that it is extremely significant that Republicans and Democrats were able to come this far, especially if they're able to put this over the finish line. I think that it is a pretty big deal. And it's also really interesting to, get to see if this passes, if this does actually have any impact.
1: Leanne Caldwell covers Congress for The Post, and she also writes the early 202 newsletter. It is a fantastic way to get news from the White House and Capitol Hill first thing in the morning. You should definitely subscribe, and we'll put a link to do that in our episode description and at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter. It was produced by Arjun Singh with help from Rennie Svernofsky. It was edited by Rena Flores. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
2: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours.